Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Tut Morasic, the General Manager of Revenue Operations at Fiat RevOps, to discuss why startups need to understand the importance of revenue operations. Tut shares his wealth of experience in startups, technology, sales, retention sales, and customer success across the tech industry, and how his team at Fiat RevOps helps sales teams streamline their processes to align them with customers' needs through discovery and assessment. We dig into what revenue operations really is and how it integrates with sales, marketing, and customer success teams within an organization to optimize revenue generation and customer lifetime value by breaking down departmental silos and fostering collaboration. Tut shares his insights into the key components of a productive sales funnel and the strategies he employs to maintain a happy and healthy sales team to reduce attrition rates. Finally, Tut shares practical strategies for anyone involved in sales and revenue operations to help more startups build successful sales organizations while driving revenue growth at any stage. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Tut Morasic from Fiat RevOps. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Tut. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here. This is my favorite podcast. I'm going to talk about it at the end, but this is my favorite podcast. Okay. Okay. Easy there, fella. You know, Tut, <laughs> I'd love to kick things off with a brief background on your journey into startups and technology and your background and experience in sales, retention sales, and even customer success around the tech industry. It was an interesting story for me getting into sales and tech to begin with. I uh, was in the Marine Corps, got out, didn't know what I was going to do, said, hey, man, I love music. I should get a degree in audio engineering and music production, which is what I did. Towards the end of that, I'm doing all these great uh, internships at these big studios, the plant in Sausalito, Hyde Street in San Francisco, and thought, everybody sitting behind these boards is 50 years old. I'm not going to make any money. I want to start a family. I want to do all these cool things. And so I had the brilliant idea and a buddy of mine I was at school with to start a record label. So we started a record label, signed some bands and started going on that road for a few years until uh, my son came along and, and my wife said, listen, dude, 17 hour days, seven days a week, this ain't going to fly. What are we doing here? So I said, you're right. Sold off my interest to the record label and production company and was like, okay, now I got to figure out what I'm going to do. How am I going to make money? Well, what am I good at? I, I know how to get bands to sign contracts. I know how to get companies to give me sponsorship money for shows. I guess sales is where I should start. And I started actually selling door-to-door office supplies for businesses, which was a very interesting role and, and very short-lived knowing that <laughs> this is not really what I want to do. There's no longevity. And I, I feel like this is more of a dead-end job. So I really pivoted to tech pretty quickly and said, this looks like the place that's going to thrive. I want to be in something that has some longevity. I want to be in something that has great benefits for my family and money. And so I started with a couple of very, very small companies. But the first real kickoff for me was a company called Demand Force. Incredible company, incredible experience. One of the best sales teams I've ever been a part of still to this day. Some great founders there with Rick Barry and Sam Osmond. Still very good friends with, with Sam today. And I actually even work with a person, uh, an ex-DFer, uh, um, Aisha Dillon, or actually Aisha Prashad then, but Aisha Dillon now, is our VP of, of BizDev here. Fiat. So those it's been long lasting relationships, but that's really where I cut my teeth into tech, into into leadership, into sales, and actually ran my first retention sales team there at at Demand Force. We had so much coming through the sales funnel and getting in, but we were leaking everything out the back. And everyone goes, we got to have something to stop this. So we started a retention sales. We called it the Save Team. Started small, grew it to eighteen people. Buffed up our retention rate so high that Intuit came in and bought the company for half a billion dollars, which was great. And then ended up taking over customer success there and, and left there shortly after that acquisition and moved on to my next now 
eight uh, startups. So, and, and really what attracted me into the startup world was I love the puzzles. I love the pace. I love the ability to come in and coach individuals and, and see what, what can I pull out of you? What can I develop out of you? It's exciting coming in and saying, Hey, here's the playbook. I want you to run the playbook. We already built. I'm like, nah, that's just, that doesn't work for me. I've tried it once or twice. It's not my thing. I want to be able to build the playbook. I want to be collaborative with people. I want to do a lot of things my own way and kind of drive and, and, and make new paths. So, but that's really the background of, of my journey into startups and what I've been doing. A lot of sales team. I've been doing this for, geez, 20 years almost now. So a lot of experience in the sales, the retention sales and customer success. And actually, let me put one more piece on the end of that because the customer success thing, people always go, it's so funny. Why do you do retention sales and customer success? I didn't actually ever really choose to do customer success. It was almost like a product of my environment. Me going to customer success either as a sales leader or a retention sales leader and saying, hey, what are we doing? We keep saving people or we keep closing these deals and they keep coming back to us saying there's a problem down funnel. And well, we're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. I quickly learned earlier in my career, if you don't have your success team aligned in parallel and actually training with your sales team to be proactive, you are missing the mark. They're supposed to be a proactive environment with the same tactics. It should be a seamless handoff and feel very comfortable for the customer. They should get the same treatment with this, with the same rapport. If you don't have that, they're always bouncing back to sales. So it was like a natural progression for me to continue to take on these success teams and and me step into new roles and people go, hey, do you just want to actually run the success team too, since you seem to be walking over getting them advice all the time? So that's really kind of how I got into all three of those. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was doing enterprise sales, you know, the cu- customer success leader was my best friend because I needed him to be happy and to succeed for me to actually close deals and actually get paid commission. So we'll get into all that. But I want to start with like, you know, this conversation of door to door sales because, you know, I did sales, you did sales. Door to door sales feels like a legacy art form that just doesn't need to exist anymore. But I'll tell you, when a, a young kid came over to sell me on some, you know, uh, home landscaping stuff this summer, he was the best salesperson I have ever seen. And I honestly wanted to hire the kid right there. And I was like, why are you doing this? And he's like, because it's fun. And I enjoy the chase of actually trying to convince people they need something they never thought they needed when I knocked on the door originally. And I think that art form of going from door-to-door sales into tech sales is just totally lost. You know, what are your thoughts on how your background, you know, obviously selling musics and bands and then going to -to door-to-door sales and then jumping at technology sales made you more successful than just someone who's always been in tech sales? Yeah, it's it's a fantastic question. And, and I'm going to tell you a story about my son because he's actually in the same, he's doing door-to-door sales right now for solar. But well, we'll start with the first part, which is it, it thickens up your skin, honestly. Like when you got to walk cold door-to-door, the level of heavy rejection that you get, the way that you need to keep yourself motivated and kind of embrace the suck and go, hey, man, I'm just going to keep going. The competitive nature and drive you have to have to get through that. After you can do that, and if you can be successful at doing that on any level, even if it's a little bit of success, getting into the other realm where you have the systematic things and uh, calling out on a phone versus walking in cold and talking to somebody face to face is a different experience when you're not used to doing it. There are so many techniques where you can say, hey, man, load up your lead list, smile and dial, you'll find your groove, you're good to go. But you're not looking somebody in the eyeballs. When you're looking somebody in the eyeballs and they're like, get out. <laughs> it's like That is a different thing or a door gets slammed in your face, which as you know, for doing it happens a lot. So the level of human to human face to face rejection that is happening happening right there and the confidence you have to have and the bullishness you have to ha- you have to have and the competitive theft you have to reach down every day and dig deep to pull it out of yourself to get it 
if you can do that, you could do anything in sales, in my opinion. Yeah, I did door-to-door sales. I, did, I sold fire extinguishers. I uh, sold boutonnieres and corsages for high school proms. And you know, it's funny, my wife is a dentist. You know, She never really did any door-to-door sales, but she wrote a, a kid's book uh, this year. And we went to a book conference to get her to set up a table and sell the books. And there was so much joy in me watching her <laughs> trying to sell something behind the desk and have people just walk by <laughs> yeah. and she was so defeated. And I'm like, this is why sales is so hard, but it builds thick character skin. And that's so important. But, you know, I want to get into this, you know, the successful part of a salesperson and a sales organization is something that it feels very pixies and failed fairy dust kind of things. It, you know, you don't really know what it is until you see it, but what are some sort of defining successful traits of a sales organization and the key factors that contribute to its success that you, we should tell everyone to know about. I wholeheartedly concur with the statement of everyone's like, it's this, it's that everyone's got their different opinion. Everyone's got a different mix. And I think a lot of that comes down to your personality, how you lead, how you want to do things. So what you think is the successful thing that you can play. But in, in, in my mind specifically, when I think about building a successful sales organization, it is all about a productive sales funnel and a happy, healthy sales team. And what I mean by that is to me, a productive sales funnel is you're increasing production per headcount while achieving revenue goals and minimizing overhead costs, right? That is a true productive sales funnel. A happy, healthy sales team, this is reducing attrition and you're achieving that through maintaining coaching, rep development, and leadership frameworks. That seems a very simplistic answer to your question, but in my like in all my experience, those two ingredients, if you can get those right, you will be successful in building a sales organization that's happy and healthy. No, I totally get it. You can't just put like a bullet point on two things and say, this is all you need. I get it. <laughs> but you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about this. So maybe explain to our audience, you know, what Fiat RevOps is uh, and what the platform is and what are the objectives and strategies that you guys employ to help sales teams streamline their processes and align them with customers' needs? So we are a consultancy. We are, we're not an agency. We don't come in and do, you know, based on performance, we come in with a retainer. We're consultancy. We bolt ourselves onto the existing team. And, and really how we do that and the objectives, objectives and strategies that we're using to get through this and, and, and deploy. It really starts with a discovery and assessment. The main objective is to identify strengths, weaknesses. What are those big gaps that we need to fill? How do we fill them? And people come in and they go, hey, I'm doing sales or I'm doing rabbits. So I'm going to meet with those people. This usually requires meeting with the entire orb. So not just with sales. You're meeting with marketing. You're meeting with products, sometimes engineering, sales ops, if that's present there in the company. It is a collaboration to identify the ideal sales cycle that meets your customer's needs. And then we go and develop a sales process to execute on that time frame. The, at, at, at its core, that's what we're coming in and looking to do. But without the piece that I said first of bolting right onto your team, being a part of that team, being in the trenches with them and seeing what's happening from the inside out, you can't do it effectively in my opinion. Right, right. So, I mean, maybe explain also what even RevOps is. We've heard that a lot. We hear sales ops, we hear RevOps. You know, why is that such a high thing that people are focused on now? And what's the importance of it when building these scalable sales organizations? I'm going to answer this in a couple of different pieces. This that's a, that's a big question, so I'm going to take it in a couple parts. <laughs> so Fiat RevOps is 
we've kind of we're using the term RevOps, but we're really redefining it into be not just what the tech stack that moves across the funnel, right? We're really going into a couple different buckets: team, process, the sales ops, which would be traditionally RevOps, and a leadership bucket. And many services and ass attributes are there. But when we think about what we got to come in and do for a revenue operations for a sales team, we want things all the way from the script, the pitch decks, variable compensation, performance management, all of those things done. We certainly want the dashboards and the reporting. We want headcount production, capacity modeling. We want to be developing reps, developing managers, all the way to the accountability piece that's the glue that holds it all together. So Fiat RevOps is really looking at it that way. But if we just want to talk about what RevOps is and the importance of how that builds scalability in, in sales organizations, I mean, that you could go with, we go with the textbook answer, which is, you know, it's the strategic approach that aligns with integrated sales marketing, customer success, or any down funnel organization. Right. It's usually its primary objective is to optimize, generate, maximize customer lifetime value, break down departmental silos, foster collaboration across all the functional areas. But I I think the thing that people get lost in and I don't think they see the true value in that that specific description I just gave you of revenue operations is the absolute importance of it especially in these days, because the modern sales organization is becoming so complex. It is not the old one. It is not the traditional sales marketing customer success that operated independently and had a fragmented process and that you didn't have to have quite aligned goals to get things done. And it's an, and that's an inefficient use of resources. So now when you look at the complexity of what we're doing today and the tech involved and your ability to escalate and reduce headcount, reduce overhead by putting all these processes in place, it really addresses the challenges of centralizing that data, the technology, the strategy, streamlining your operations, enhancing the overall revenue performance. And when I think about how you bucket those things out and you really want to build a scalable organization, you got to ask yourself a few questions. Do I have enhanced visibility and data-driven decision-making? Can I see inside my various sources, my CRMs, my marketing automation, my customer support or success tools, or any down-funnel team that's coming after after sales? Do I have a, a comprehensive view of my customer journey? Like, What is the visibility into my organization to adi- identify trends, optimize processes, inform decision-makers? Do I have improved alignment and collaboration? Am I breaking down the silos between the sales, the marketing, the customer success? Am I fostering a culture of collaboration and shared goals? Does this align with the departments around a unified strategy for revenue, right? Is the messaging consistent? Is the handoff seamless? Is there a coordinated effort around the growth that the company's saying that we need? I think that dives from there into operational efficiency and scalability. Am I eliminating redundancies and manual processes? Do I automate my workflows? Am I leveraging the tech tools to increase operational efficiencies? All of those process pieces and productivity, are you sacrificing and leaving those on the table? Because if you are, you don't really understand the value of RevOps, right? You don't understand that piece. Are you optimizing for your customer experience? Huge deal. So many people miss this when I walk into shops to build them or clients that we sign now these days. Deliver consistent, personalized customer experience in the buyer journey is an absolute must. You can't do that without an effective RevOps system in place that you're using effectively. And I think probably the last piece to that, in my mind, really is revenue growth and profitability. Like the overarching goal of RevOps, everything I just said, is to drive revenue growth and improve profitability. If you're not streamlining operations, if you're not optimizing your sales process, if you're not aligning resources then you're not maximizing revenue generation, you're not reducing costs, and you're certainly not achieving sustainable growth. 
Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to hear how much RevOps has been brought up now at board meetings and in just overall founder conversations. And I think it has to do a lot with the fact that one, there's just so much more data out there for you to process. Two, the tools available now for smaller organizations that may have only been saved for like the Fortune 500s before are now coming down in cost and are now being accessible to through people like you to say, hey, just because you're a couple million dollar revenue SaaS business at the Series A stage doesn't mean you're too early to focus on these types of things. And the, the biggest thing I've realized is that waiting till you get to $10 million in revenue to put in these infrastructure plays is just a nightmare. You're ripping out and replacing everything. You're redoing the CRM. You're redoing your entire funnel and handoff processes. It's a nightmare. Why is that? I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, I, and I think it's that people go, hey, well, I really want to stay lean. I hear this all the time when I get on calls with, with potential clients and, and clients that we sign. I, I really want to stay lean. I want to stay lean. We only got X amount of money. We got to stretch this. We got to have our runway. You can stay lean and be productive. Do you want to stay lean and then build all of this technical debt and these technical processes that when as soon as you got money, you got to spend this absorbent amount of money to go unravel and put in a whole new system? Or do you actually want to invest with upfront with the right systems, the right people and build yourself in parallel for what you're doing? Because I promise you, when you do it that way and the clients that we have that we get early enough that we teach to do it that way, they're not only seeing revenue growth, but when they go to raise that next found, fr- that next round of, of, of capital, they already have the track record. Here is my track record. Here is my system. Here is my weighted pipeline. Here is my forecast. Here is the tech that I'm leveraging to do that. My system is so tight. I can you can open up the hood and look at it, Mister and Mrs. Investor, and you can see the magic that's happening on this side. That leads to bigger rounds of funding for them. That leads to greater success, and then you don't have to unwind all this debt. Yeah. The old saying, you got to spend money to make money is always true when it comes to sales. It's a hard trade-off though for founders who are, you know, thinking about, wait a second, I got to spend, you know, a quarter million dollars just to get this thing up and running. And I don't even know if it works because I don't even know if I have product market fit. I get it. That's a big trade-off. But just like you said, if you're going into that fundraising conversation and all you have to do is give them access to your mosaic dashboard and you've got everything in there for them to actually pin down and like build their own cohort analysis on top of it. It's a way faster conversation to get to a yes or a no instead of wasting all this time, having all this context around why this funnel is leaky and why this is the wrong ICP and all that kind of crap. But enough of that. You know, what does leadership's role play in driving these sales and retention strategies? And and how do you foster these personal career growth progressions with your teams? And how should other leaders think about it for their teams as well? I'm going to take that in a couple parts as well. So, should lead, what does leadership play a role in 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 sales and retention? I believe leader plays a huge role, like at every level, from team lead through CRO. The leadership is playing a role in sales and retention internally. Uh, our reps developed and coached well. Our team leads developed and coached well. Our teams held accountable to goals and metrics and the KPIs set forth and also that they committed to. Does sales leadership make sure that the team knows the newest product information? Are they well-equipped to deliver a world-class experience for the customer? And and let's look at post-sales. Post-sales into that retention realm, is the handoff seamless to CS? Is the CS trained along with your sales tactics? Are they proactive in continuing education and upsell opportunities? If leadership is not involved in all aspects of that and driving those pieces actively on a daily basis, you have a systematic breakdown, you lose trust, and the teams start to pull apart. When I think of personal development, I'm a huge, huge proponent of work-life balance. Now, 
I suck at it. I'm really, really bad at it myself. It's something I'm trying to work on. I've been working on it my entire career. If, if, if my wife was in here, she would be like, he's awful at it. He's the worst. But I'm really, really good at making my, giving my teams the opportunity to, to take advantage of that. You know, I've always told my teams, big or small, take the time when you can. You know, this, this uh, idea of unlimited PTO that kind of came out seven, eight years ago when that was like, boom, that's a standard part of the benefits package for every startup now. It's a great idea. You know, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a time golden handcuff because obviously you can't take unlimited PT all the time. You got to get permission for it. It's got to be the time that you can work in your system. But the concept of it, I thought was great. So when people are able to take the time, whether that's Add on a Friday to get a three-day weekend for yourself. Take the week off if, if you can do that and the team's in a place and there's not a bunch of people taking time off. Get the permission from your manager ahead of time. Take that time. In my mind, a rested brain is much more inventive. It's much more productive than a tired one. That's the brain I want on my floor, in my shop, working and collaborating and working with customers. I don't require people and tell people quite often, don't answer emails. I'm going to send you an email at 8.30 or 10.30 at night because it's on my brain and I need to get it out of my brain. <laughs> but but me sending you an email does not mean that you need to stop what you're doing in your personal time and reply to me. It can all wait till tomorrow. You know, that's the same with like working on weekends. If you're not scheduled to work on a weekend, I don't expect you to do that. You don't need to do that. Clearly, there's uh, there's exceptions to both of these. Hey, we've got an emergency. I really need your help with this project or something like that. That should be far and few in between. And honestly, should never go down to the rep level. I can't imagine where I need to have an AE come in and help me with a project on a weekend, right? That's much more of a director plus thing. And that would be expected based on, on that role if we need to do that every once in a while. But if you do these for people, what I have found is you get so much more productivity out of everyone every day. They're happier. They appreciate the freedom of that. They appreciate that you're understanding and respecting those boundaries of their work-life balance. And we're not all CEOs. We don't all need to work like a CEO. That should not be the, the, the standard realm and mindset. And then when we go into career growth, to me, it's all about developing your people. It's the consistent reoccurring training, the daily role playing. I have a lot of my teams do daily and evening standups at just for 10 or 15 minutes, but they're extremely valuable in my opinion, because what it does is it lets you get the marbles out of your mouth. It lets you role play scenarios you're struggling with. It lets everybody start to develop those skill sets even more. Weekly subject matter training, call coaching, and a huge one. I see everybody miss. I shouldn't say everybody. 90 eight percent of people miss and teams miss is doing effective one-on-ones i can't tell you how many times i come in and it's like to me an effective one-on-one is structured this way it's a rep's time with a manager not a manager's time with a rep right now you can alternate that week by week and go hey you know i got so many meetings i can't just do professional development every week so we're going to go performance professional development performance professional development that's fine too but it has to be semi-consistent because there has to be something that the reps feeling that they're getting from you to go forward so alternating is fine but if you're not spending time listening to your direct reports about their career goals helping them build a plan to go to the next level elevate themselves knowing that their aspirations they have other aspirations besides management i just want to be an individual contributor. How do I do that and still make more money? Or maybe they have interest in other departments. If you're not doing those things, you're absolutely failing as a leader and you're not fostering career growth for your people. Yeah, for sure. Career growth is a hard thing. And also going back to the, like the emails late at night. I mean, that's something I know now, right? Raising young kids, like that's the free time I have at 830 at night when the kids are down to send emails. That doesn't mean the person I'm sending to has to respond. But unfortunately, that sort of first in, first out mentality of, a, of an inbox 
you know, throws a lot of people off, right? They're like, my inbox is shut yeah, down. My boss emailed me. I got to respond to my boss. It's just when yeah. I have the free time, <laughs> you know, between changing <laughs> exactly. diapers to get you your answers. Um, but let's talk about some of the ROI side. You know, everyone wants to understand that there's an ROI to the cost of setting up this infrastructure and seeing it through. Can you share some examples of how you've succeeded in developing and maximizing, you know, the return on investment for some of the clients that you work with? A lot of things that I probably a lot of the answers I'm going to give today are there. I have a very systematic approach on everything that I do, right? And this is it's the way my brain works in general, but just for I've been doing it so long and made enough mistakes along the way and learned enough lessons that everything in a systematic approach will yield you the results and the ROIs that you're looking for. So, really, when we're talking about this, you need to, we need to take a step back and say, how do I even get the system of developing and maximizing the necessary skill sets? To do that, you need to go through a little run of something. You need to, number one, come in and identify the skills required for the thing that you're asking somebody to do, number one. And then do a skill assessment. And in this evaluation of the current skill assessment of the team, you got to be brutally honest. And I mean brutally honest with, does this team member have the abilities to do what I'm asking them to do? Do they have the skill sets? And does the team overall have the capability to deliver what I'm asking them to do? If that is not the case, or if it's a 50-50, you got to say, okay, who can I train up? So then you go to training and development. You identify the skills gap. You start developing a training plan. Who fits into this training plan and who doesn't? Because whoever doesn't, Now we need to fire up recruitment and hiring. I can't develop these two people over here. I know they're too far down the rung. They need to go out and they need to get some butts in the seats that actually have the skill sets currently or that I can develop quickly into the system. And then as you go through that exercise, it's really about the effective communication and expectation setting. Clearly communicate your expectations. Does the rep understand what they need to do? Can they be successful at it? Are they ready to be coached up and adjust their work to fit your methods? And then a big piece of get, taking all of that stuff and giving them the skill sets is the empowerment to reps and managers to make decisions to solve problems. That starts the critical thinking process of it and the problem solving gets them more invested in their work, gets them more apt to raise those skill sets and deliver results. And then you round it out with the classic sales thing that every sales team loves, rewards and recognition. <laughs> like I can't tell you how many times you give a, a sales rep a trophy of a, somebody body slamming somebody because they beat somebody in a call contest or a big medal. And, and they're more excited about that than if you gave them a $200 Amazon gift card. Like Salespeople are competitive by nature. That's why they're in this business. Yes, we love money, but we love competition. We want a good love-hate relationship. I want to beat you as uh, as bad as I could. And also, if you ask for some help, I'll, I'll lean over and help <laughs> you out as well. But that, that that reward that that reward and that recognition is a huge piece of it. Those attaboys, we need them. We it's something that we feed off of and drive forward, and and, and really fosters that good culture. And then to round it out, you just got to constantly review. Like you have to constantly review and adjust your methods as you go along. You can't go, okay, I got the team. Here's the skill sets. Now go do everything. If it's not a constant review on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, even on a quarterly basis, I will take my entire sales leadership team and say, hey, we're going to try to book in two days if we can get it, maybe three days. We're going to book a session with every single software in our tech stack with that account manager and say, what do you got new this quarter? What are we not using effectively? I'm going to review it because we paid all this money for the tech. I can't tell you how many shops I've walked into. A great example. Gong's one of my favorite call coaching softwares. I'll walk in. Gong's an expensive software. It is not cheap and has all these capabilities. I'll walk in there like, yeah, we're recording things. 
Well, you, we're recording things and we talk about them. Okay, well, you're using scorecards. Are you using this? Did you set your own custom topics? I don't know how to do that. So you're using 2% of this very expensive system that you could be using 100% of and getting 100% better results than you're getting right now. So reviewing your tech stack and making sure that you're educated and up to date and your managers are using it to the, to, to the best of their ability and the best of its ability is a huge piece of, 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 of raising those skill sets. All of that leads to ROI you know, if you execute on it. So let's talk about a founder. You know, let's say you got a Series A founder. They've raised you know ten million bucks. They got two and a half million of revenue. You know, they feeling good, right? Like they've got a business here, and they come in and say, like, but I think something's broken with our sales product. I'm not really happy. Our our month over month growth is starting to stall. We're really struggling to hit our quarterly goals. Can you ask me some questions uh, that should be poking around on what we think might be broken? What do you usually pick up on right away? That is stopping those, you know, those founders and those companies from going past that two and a half million dollar mark because it is such a big hill to climb. We find what is the, the most common things you're seeing that are broken. The most common thing is people have a great product. the The sales team is good or okay, but the product has been selling itself. And in that, even in a disjointed thing, people are picking up on that product and going, "Hey, this is something I can use." Where you get stuck and hit your platform is. I'll go, okay, we, we made all these sales. We've made this money. We're at, we're at, you know, we're, we're getting to 2 million and, and here's our next ramp to, to your example, 10 million. Okay, great. But we don't want to get there. Everything seems to be stalling out right on this. We can't push past it. When you go in and look at what their sales process is, the infrastructure in their system and how they're actually moving leads effectively through the funnel, you will find that there is things stalling, falling out, not getting captured, not moving forward for the simplest things of having service level agreements and cadences in each funnel stage. And I know that sounds like a simplistic answer, but that simplicity and the 101 part of it is what everybody misses. And they go, well, I don't know how to move it through faster. Okay, well, how long does it take for a rep to respond to a web lead? I don't know. Well, is it an hour? Is it three days? I don't know. I think when they get around to them. Well, let me just throw out a stat. If you respond to a web lead within five minutes, it converts at a 96% higher rate. True fact. Like that, that is across all industries. People don't sit around and wait. They don't submit a web form and go, hey, I'm just going to wait till this company gets back to me in three days. So it might have been working before and you might have been closing some deals before. But when you have no concept about end-to-end lead flow, you have no defined sales process and you don't have the infrastructure built, you will hit a place in your business where the momentum just stops until you tighten the screws and start working a process in an effective manner. Some people think it's like the reporting that they don't have in place that allows them to not even uncover these, but it's actually at the beginning of the process that they don't have the right infrastructure, not at the end of the process. Absolutely. The reporting is going to tell you, you can certainly, if you go, Hey, I don't know what's going on, but I'm really good at reporting. I I've never heard that answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're, if you're really good at reporting, you're usually good at the stuff up front as well. But yes, let's say in, in, in this scenario, let's say I'm really good at reporting. Yes. You could run the report and go, well, I think this is what's happening. But the problem is even with reporting, reporting can only tell you so much if you don't have the middle set up right. What are you reporting on? If you don't have your infrastructure built and I run a report and say, tell me how, tell me how long it goes. Every lead stays in each stage. 
but you don't have it set up that way in your infrastructure, your reporting is not going to tell you anything. It's just going to be blank. So you have to start up front and build from the front down funnel and build that good infrastructure. If you do that, you can see visibility. You got your weighted pipeline. You know how leads flow. You know things are out of SLA. You know what the accountability pieces for your reps and your managers are. And then you can dive in and say, this is a gap. Why is this happening? Why are we not responding here? Why do things stay in MQL instead of moving to SQL for four days? Why do things stay in Evolve instead of going to demo for X amount of days? The SLA we agreed on was 48 hours. So the the infrastructure gives you the ability to run the reporting, which gives you the ability to have accountability in that system. You know, speaking of funnel, obviously there's a, so many different areas where there's leaky buckets in a funnel, and we go through our funnels with our you know founders all the time. And there's different reasons for why there's a leaky bucket. But in your experience, you know, what are the key components of a productive sales funnel, and how can companies achieve revenue goals while minimizing overhead costs, i.e., leaky buckets? It really it, it comes back down to the same one-on-one components that we're talking about, like leaky buckets only happen because you don't know how to build your funnel, the right infrastructure, and you don't know how to look at it consistently. So if I have a funnel, like I walk in to anybody's company, I walk into a new client right now and I come in, the first thing that we do when we look under the hood is we look under the hood of the CRM and go, how are you even looking at your funnel, right? How is it set up? You very quickly can identify there if there's no sales process, I'm not doing pipeline management. We're not doing performance management. We don't have SLAs and cadences to to each deal stage, whether that's HubSpot or Salesforce. I have no visibility into what's happening into my infrastructure and my funnel because I've not built it that way. So leaky buckets happen for a lot of different reasons. It's the bucket you don't pay attention to. And so it leaks, right? There's no accountability around it. You have not established any type of process to work that stage of the funnel. And so that bucket sits and it either things die on the vine there or they fall out the bottom uh, through attrition. So it it really is the basics one-on-one of infrastructure and process that you need to look at. That should identify your leaky buckets and and drive things forward. Now, if you have the perfect process and infrastructure and you're like, man, everything is getting stuck, it's your reps. It's your reps. But if you have the perfect, I shouldn't even say perfect. That seems like a lofty goal. If you have good infrastructure and process, it means you have good reporting. You should be able to identify a gap in your system in a day. You should be able to, and and let's not even say a day, maybe that's another lofty goal, but definitely in a week, no longer than a week, should you be able to see a gap that starts to form? And if that's a rep gap, then it comes back down to performance management, having good performance management in place to performance manage individuals out and put people in the seat that know how to do the production. All right. So you got the infrastructure, you got the processes. Now you're saying if it's not working, it's probably the reps or probably the leadership. So, you know, a common thing we see with early stage companies as well is the company they had selling a hundred K ARR or 500 K ARR are still the same team selling uh, 2.5 million or even 3 million of ARR. How do you think about leveling up your sales team? And how do you think about almost getting rid of a, a, a earlier sales team and actually replacing it with a better, more, you know, series A plus type of sales team. How should people think about that as a founder? I think that also comes down very much to performance management. And when I say performance management, let me elaborate what I mean by that. Cause I know that's just like me, I'm throwing out a big term. I know what it means, but just so the listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. When I think about performance management, it's something that you pay attention to every single day, every week, but you actually have conversations on a biweekly and, a, and, a, and at the end of the month with your team. Meaning, 
here's the expectation of performance for a rep. We'll just break it down to a rep first before a manager. How many calls you're supposed to make, right? How many emails you're supposed to send? How many deals you're supposed to close? How much revenue those deals are supposed to generate? If you are below that performance mark, even for a week, we're having a conversation. Now, if you've been at work all week, like let's let's say you haven't been sick, nothing's happened outside, you didn't have a kid, a family member wasn't sick, you've been working for all five days solid, you're below the line, I'm going to give you a written and verbal warning. That's what's going to happen on week one. Week two, if you're not out of it, you're on a pip. If you have one, you have two weeks to get off of that pip, but you don't show progress in the first week, I'm, I'm terminating you. So the performance, and I think this really comes down to the mentality of how you run a team. People step up to the plate and drive these things forward and work on all these skill set trainings and, 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 and the things that we've been talking about in the beginning of the podcast. People, people bury themselves in that and make themselves better. Leaders bury themselves in their teams to make their teams better when the accountability level is right in front of your face. It is a performance-based environment that we do with sales. I know a lot of people like to drag the PIP thing out. I know there's, uh, you know, the last 10 years, there's a common thing that's come up with a lot of companies that work for it. It's like, we're a family. Guess what? We're not a family. You may love your teammate more than you love most of your family members. I can even say that's true for some of my family members and some of the, my peers that I've worked with. But never forget, this is a team. We are based on performance. If you don't perform to the level that the team requires you to perform, you got to go. And there's no reason to mess around with somebody. I really think one of the things that I try to tell teams is like, listen, my empathy goes as far as your effort. We're running a race together. You trip and fall, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to keep picking you up as long as every time I pick you up, you are charging as hard as you can. And maybe even after me picking you up a bunch of times and you trying as hard as you can, you still just can't keep up with the group. Hey, man, this isn't a good fit. We got to move on. But it's the minute that I pick you up and I have to drag you, we're done. Like that is the end of it. That is you are dragging down the team. You're not living up to your expectation of what my commitment to you and your commitment to me is and your commitment to the team. So all in all, it is about the accountability, is about the mentality and the sales culture you build for your team. And is it about performance management done aggressively? Yeah. I mean, we hear about this family versus team argument all the time. Toby at Shopify even tweeted about it and saying, you know, at Shopify, when we had to let go of how many people, you know, we aren't a family. You don't get to choose your family. You do get to choose your team though. You, you, and you get to draft a team and you're stuck with family, but you aren't stuck with your team. And so, you know, having a mindset towards that, I think in the beginning is really healthy and important. You know, how would you suggest approaching a healthy mindset with the sales team to reduce attrition? And what sort of like mindsets do you share with people that you want to make sure that they are putting the effort in that you are when you help them every time? So this is something that I've thought about very early on in my career. How do I get my team to kind of, how do I give them a framework or something to work? And I think that comes a lot from, you know, I played football my entire life. Uh, I, I was, I was an infantry Marine. You get this kind of culture and this framework. And I was, my brain was used to that. And I thought, man, this is a really good place. Give me the guidelines. How do I exist in this world? And so I really tried to do that when I got into sales leadership and, and iterated some things over the years, but really about seven or eight years ago, I really landed on what I think, and I think it's a great framework and it's been very, very successful for me to build a couple category Kings, a couple very large successful teams. And there's four components when I think about the, the leadership framework. I'm always looking to hire people that are smarter than me. And I very much encourage my direct reports to do the same thing. If you're the smartest person in the room, where's the space for everybody else? There's no collaboration. You're just the dude making the decisions or lady making the decisions and everybody else is going along with it. A horrible environment to live in. I want a hive mind. I want as many brains attacking this problem as I possibly can get. 
Number two, I give a lot of ownership in the process. If you got skin in the game, higher level of commitment, higher level of execution. Number three, keep the human element involved. This is really around empathy and transparency. If something is, and this is a very unpopular one, by the way, I'm sure people are going to listen to this and be like, nah, I would never do that. But you should uh, consider it, at least consider it, everybody. So something's going to change with your rep, their role, their money, their responsibilities, a big change at the company. I need to move you from this team to this team. I am a person that go, breaks the mold and goes outside. I will have conversations with not only my direct reports, but I will let them have conversations with their people to prep them for this move. Now, that doesn't mean we're about to do a huge headcount reduction. And I tell everybody we're letting people go. That's like letting the rumor mill out of the bag and people create their own narratives. That's a bad thing. But at a certain, but I do like my direct reports now. I want people to be prepped for a big change like that. Change management and the ability to do it is a lost skill set, an unrecognized skill set a lot of people don't even think about. Hugely important. The only way you get good is that is you have good, honest communication. And when you do these things and you treat people with a human element, the trust and loyalty that that fosters, when you have to deliver that bad news, people go, hey, man, I, I, I get it. Uh, thank you so much for being honest with me. I trust you. They will weather the storm with you because they trust that you have their best interest in mind. When you do the whispering behind closed doors thing, people don't trust you at all. So you deliver bad news. They go, this, this place sucks. I'm out of here. And then the fourth component to that leadership framework really is don't be afraid to fail. And that doesn't mean that I encourage failure, but I kind of do. I want you to fall down on your face a couple of times, especially as a rep, especially as a young leader. To me, failure is the biggest growth point personally and professionally for us. I want you to stretch your legs. I want to remove that failure thing. I don't want you to be afraid of public shaming and termination, demotion. I want you to take a chance. Again, especially as a young leader, take a chance, make a decision. Nothing you're going to do is going to be like, hey, man, that was a really bad decision. We're closing the doors tomorrow. Like That's not a possibility. So if I remove that, then I allow you to break that ceiling and set a new floor, break that ceiling and set a new floor. And that's what I want all everybody in my sales orgs doing. That's what I want everybody doing at the company, but particularly in sales. If you can't set that new floor, you're not growing in your role. You're going to be like, ah, I mean, this was cool. I had a good run. I'm going to go somewhere else that gives me the development and, and, the, and the environment and culture that I want. Yeah. I mean, those are some of my favorite meetings to have as a team is just saying, hey, this is a learning lesson, not not a failure lesson that we want to talk about and spend time about. You know, talking about coaching and development, though, you know, you've worked with teams from going from one or two to six reps and then from five to 50 or even 100 plus reps. Can you give us some strategies around those coaching and development frameworks for successfully and growing and scaling a team all the way up to those 100 plus reps? When I think about like developments and, and program, I really, again, I'm going to come back to the systems things. Everything I do, I think about as a system. So when I, when I think about that systematic approach in my mind, it really comes back to the daily standups, the role playing, the getting the marbles out of your mouth, the consistent call coaching, the consistent subject matter training on, on a weekly basis, objection handling, how to prospect, how to ladder sell, how to solution sell instead of how to feature sell. And for managers, it's really like, how do I monitor the dashboard? How do I have difficult conversations? How do I coach in real time to the things that are happening on my team daily and weekly? And if you do that, especially for managers, what you find is they find gaps automatically. And then they and they are able to fill those gaps and advance those pieces and coach their people out of it in real time. Not two weeks later of like, hey man, you messed up a few times over the last couple of weeks. Like, dude, why don't you tell me Wednesday before last so we could get this out of the way and I could grow and move forward. And it's really comes back to, uh, to the point I made earlier about the tech enhancements. You have to understand how to leverage the tech stack you have at the a hundred percent of its ability to make yourself productive. If you're not doing that, you're throwing money down a tube and you're you're doing a big disservice to your team. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you've obviously worked with so many different companies. You've seen what the key success factors are that contribute to success and which ones are breaking down. You know, what happens when they're just stuck in their old ways and they're so focused on maybe product innovation and, and engineering side and the sales gets left, you know, as a, as a second or third thought. How do you change up that mindset and have you had to actually change up the actual leadership like founding team and gone to a board and said, look, this is a CEO that's just so focused on the wrong areas. This business is not even going to be around in the next year or two. You know, how do you deal with that? What a complicated issue to deal with and, 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 and a complicated question. Um, I've actually never gone to the board myself and said, hey, <laughs> I'm going to jump the shark and come over to you and tell you what's going on. But I have had several times the board come to me and say, hey, I, you're, you're talking because I, I talk in a good amount of board meetings. Like, so I'm coming in and presenting, hey, this is what's going on. Here are my recommendations. When I'm going and saying, okay, this is what's going on with sales. This is how we drive revenue. I certainly have come across a lot of CEOs either in, in, in this consulting business or me being a full-time employee of like, we really got to focus on product and drive product. Well, we really need to focus on all our engineering resources and sales is going to have to limp along. Well, sales can't just limp along. That's not how sales works. You don't just go, hey, I'm going to put the pause button. That's an ex very expensive venture to say, turn off leads, uh, shut down sales, ramp it down. We're going to do these other initiatives first. You have to run it in parallel. So really convincing them of like painting the picture of what it looks like to shut the machine down, how long it takes to start the machine back up to get productivity, and what that looks like for them to answer for that to their board. So. I, a lot of times will say, this is what's going to happen. This is how long it takes up. Can you tell me how you're going to explain that to the board? Because they're going to come and ask me about it. I know they are. And this is how I'm going to explain it to the board. So it's really about giving them some perspective about how the, their decision making is going, and what the repercussion of that decision is. Now, if the board comes to me, I just give them the same exact truth of like, here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. Here's my recommendations. Again, you can't turn the machine off because turning it back on takes three, three times as much. We're going to lose people. We're going to lose all of these things. So really, it's the reality check and painting the picture of what it looks like to shut that piece off. Yeah. I mean, if I was the board member and I have been board members where you've got that kitchen sink quarter, you've got this like <laughs> kind of pause and reset moment. I actually enjoy those meetings because it feels very authentic towards like what the long-term goal is. And let's not do this like two steps forward, one step back where we're growing 10% month over month, but we're also like churning 5% every month. So it's not really that progressive in what you're doing. Let's just hit the pause button, reset, recalibrate, and then really go and put the pedal to the metal for the next year of runway that we have or something. But though, those are for another conversation. You know, Todd, I got to ask, you know, Fiat has so many different uh, parts of the program that you offer. You've got Fiat Growth, Fiat RevOps, and Fiat Ventures. You know, Explain to me how all these different services and expertise are offered through the platform and also what the hell Fiat Ventures is. <laughs> Good. Let's start with Fiat Ventures. That's a great question. Uh, uh, Fiat Ventures is run by an incredible guy, uh, Marcos Fernandez. Uh, the guy's awesome. He's the most handsome nerd I know. So Fiat Ventures is really, they're reverse engineering the VC model. That's really what they're going for. And what I mean by that is we've built this world-class growth platform with Fiat Growth. And then you've got Fiat RevOps in, in that ecosystem. You've got Fiat Advisor for early stage for early stage companies in that ecosystem. So Fiat Ventures bringing people in 
uh, and investing in it, then putting it into our ecosystem. So we're able to, to tool those companies up and get them where they need to go very quickly. That is a great, a, a great investment. And then you're, you're locking yourself in or it works the opposite way. We're bringing it in through, through fiat growth or rev ops or, or advisory. We're tooling these companies up, getting them in a really healthy place. And then fiat ventures goes, Hey, we'd love to invest in that. Your projections look really good. <laughs> so, so it, it, it is a great ecosystem to exist in. It really kind of takes the turn of like, I want this and, and then you guys go figure out thing. It is leveraging an entire ecosystem to come in and ensure that your investment is good or ensure you're investing in something that has already been made good. And when I first got over here to Fiat Growth, the one thing that I realized, and, and even I guess before I even came on, um, a good friend of mine that I work with at Unison, who was our VP of Growth and Marketing over there, Gerard Fain, who's one of the managing partners here at Fiat. The thing that sold me the most to even come over here and start this RevOps vertical was like, listen, man, like this is going to be an environment you've never worked in because because it is all of this group of people and everybody is a senior individual that's at the top of their game skill set wise they've all crushed it in their careers and now they're coming over here to do this and i was like yeah yeah you know and i'm you know never been accused of being humble so i kind of had like a yeah whatever i'm on top of my game too which i still think i am but <laughs> but coming into this environment i was like man he was not even exaggerating a little bit the the power punch of talent that is, sits at this company is incredible which is why it's so effective it's why you know fiat growth as a whole has done over 100 plus clients and generated over a billion dollars in revenue for them that is a massive massive undertaking and a huge success story when you have something that services, demand gen, affiliates, partnerships, life cycle, a conversion rate optimization, has creative services. You have all of this at a senior level. When you bolt it on, you just start seeing results. It's the same reason why RevOps is so effective in the things we do. You bolt us onto the team and we start going. You don't need to make to think that, did I hire the wrong VP of sales or the wrong CRO? And how long does it take for them to hire all their team? We got it. You've got the CRO, you've got the VP of sales, you've got the directors and all the assets you need. We just bolt on and go, man. It's like, you know, it, it is it is an out-of-the-box shop that you can latch on and start getting results and progress right away. That entire ecosystem existing together, I think, is something really special. It's nothing I've seen before. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've just not seen it before. So I really love Venture's approach to reverse engineering into the VC model. I really love Gross' approach to adding all of these senior people into one ecosystem and being able to just go out and absolutely do the best top-notch work for our clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first came across you guys, I was really blown away by the fact that it was like out of the box, go and hit the ground running kind of thing. And then throwing the ventures on top is just really a smack in my face. So like talk about value add type investing, but luckily you don't go as early as we go because there's not <laughs> enough to actually build on. So we'll bring you in after we invest, you know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off your favorite podcast and don't say tank talks. Okay. I, I'm not. I know I said that in the beginning. I, I, armchair Expert. Honestly, Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard is my favorite, my favorite podcast. I just, I love, I love what they do on there. It cracks me up. That's my heading to the gym and coming back from the gym. That's my decompress from the day. Throw on an episode of Armchair and, and, and zone out. It's so good. A hilarious one too. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. So I don't really have a newsletter or blog, but I do have a site. RevOps Co-op is a, is a Slack channel I subscribe to and it's, it's on LinkedIn. I think it's so much better than, I guess you could call it a blog because there's lots of different facets to it, but 
you have such a, a huge audience of talented RevOps people on there from all different walks of life, career advice, uh, tech advice, software advice. It's just a really good community. So I tend to go more towards communities than blogs and, and, and newsletter stuff. I just get a little bit more out of it. I'm an extrovert, extrovert. What can I say? You know, I mean, that's more of my mode. So, so that's what I would, that's what I would say for that. RevOps co-op. I got to check that one out. Next is your favorite tech gadget. Man, anything AI right now. Like I'm uh, just anything that has to do with AI, I'm obsessed with. You know, we we just had a great uh, offsite um, week before last, and 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 one of our speakers, Mon, was just there talking about he's doing AI stuff for Google, and he didn't give us any super uh, Google secrets. In case this is being recorded by Google, <laughs> hey Google. <laughs> uh, but just the concept of everything that's happening, using it on a daily basis. Like I do things, and then use AI just. To, like I'll I'll write up a work play or something, and then I'll just run it through AI and be like, "How close did I get this in ChatGPT to what I just did? Would that have saved me, you know, thirty minutes?" So it's really about using AI consistently, day over day over day. Even if it doesn't apply to your job or you don't think it applies to your job, it will very soon. Start practicing. So anything AI is my favorite new tech stuff. And which is your first to go to? Is it Bard or is it Claude or is it ChatGPT? It's ChatGPT. You know what I mean? I, I, I've tried the other ones, but, but I have, I have, I've been working on my prompts good with ChatGPT. I feel like it's been learning really good from the Tuttle's magic. And so I'm kind of sticking <laughs> with it. I do need to, I do need to branch out a little bit, I'm sure. But right now, me and ChatGPT, we got each other. That's nice. <laughs> Favorite new trend. <laughs> this has nothing to do with business, but I find it hilarious because I've got an, an 18 and a 19 year old oversized clothing. You know, like the uh, NBA players in like the early 2000s when you see their draft. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like me, man. That was that was like me in, in high school, man. I'm 46 years old, so I've been high school for 30 years. But when I was in high school, it was the big ponchos and the sweatshirts and the baggy dickies and you know, great style. I still love it. I look at pictures of myself. I'm like, man, I look cool. Can't pull it off these days, but you know, now I'm a little more tightened up and buttoned up. <laughs> but I love that it's coming back around. My my daughter's wearing it. Her friends, I'm like, you guys look ridiculous. That's cool. But yeah, oversized clothing. Thank God you held on to those Dockers too, right? And those Dockers and overalls. I, I know, right? Next is your favorite book? Uh, the Second Mountain. Um, I just got turned on in this book recently. I'm about halfway through it. I just, I'm loving it right now. It's really about a transitional story, kind of self-explanatory, coming off the first mountain and heading up to second mountains. But I think especially for people that are, I don't even know that it has to do later on in your career. People in their career in general, you have something that changes your trajectory and there's a new mountain to climb. I, this book just from the get go, right when I got a chapter and I was like, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. So I've been, I've been uh, every minute I have that's free, which is not that many minutes, but every minute that I do get, Maria's walking into the office being like, you reading the book again? I'm like, dude, I can't put this thing down. <laughs> so the second mountain, it's, it's a great book. It's a, it's a must read. I like that. It's like the second act for like midlife crisis in your career or life. Exactly. You know, so I got a book and bought an emu instead of a Harley. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't a periwinkle blue Vespa. That's okay though. Uh, Last but not least, it's your favorite life lesson. Two things. Like personally, don't have unrealistic expectations. Like this was something I learned later on in life after a lot of like being frustrated. If you don't expect people to do things you want them to do, don't expect them to have the capabilities you want them to have. Don't have unrealistic expectations of people. Uh, your life will be so much easier. And I think I mentioned this one earlier, but I think it's a great thing for a life's lesson in work is my empathy goes as far as your effort. I really do love that one. Ending it there is the perfect place to stop. So thanks for joining us in the tank today with Tut Morassic from Fiat RevOps. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 